Good morning and welcome backwards, continuing with reading of the Bhagavad Gita and talking about the mentality of a warrior. And I actually came across the passage by Stephen Pressfield, which I mentioned in the first episode on this topic, discussing being a Marine. In fact, actually, this might be a different one, but nonetheless, it's a very good passage that also mentions the Bhagavad Gita. So the title of the passage is, A Marine Gets Two Salaries. There's a well-known gunnery sergeant who, when his young Marines complain about their play pay, he explains that they get two salaries. A financial salary and a psychological salary. The Marine's financial salary is indeed meager. But what about the psychological salary, the feeling of pride and honor, the sense of belonging to a brotherhood with a brave and noble history, and knowing that, no matter what happens, you remain a member of that fraternity as long as you live? How much, the gunny asks, is that worth? You and I, as artists and entrepreneurs, receive two salaries as well. The first might be called conventional rewards, money, applause, attention. That kind is fine if we can get it. The problem for most of us is we can't. We bust our butts training and practicing and studying and rehearsing and nobody shows up, nobody notices, nobody even knows we exist. No wonder people quit. The struggle requires too much agony for too little payoff. That's the conventional reward. Then there is the psychological reward. Remember, Krishna told Arjuna that he had the right to his labor but not to the fruits of his labor. What he meant was conventional fruits. Does the monk meditate only to achieve enlightenment? What if that never happens? What does the dancer take from the ballet class? Is it fun for the actor to perform? Why does the singer sing or the filmmaker shoot? When we do the work for itself alone, I know how easy that is to say and how hard it is to do. We're like that marine who sleeps in the foxhole in the freezing rain, but who knows a secret that only he and his brothers and sisters share. When we do the work for itself alone, our pursuit of a career, or a living, or fame, or wealth, or notoriety turns into something else, something loftier and nobler, which we may never even have thought about or aspired to at the beginning. It turns into a practice. And as I was reading that just now, I like this part where he says, problem for most of us is that we can't get conventional awards money applause attention and so on and so forth uh, that made me think a lot about this premise of in mythological hero's journey archetypal monomyth is that you're going into the transcendental realm and they say that the artist is the modern day mystic or shaman although obviously there are modern mystics and shamans that are not in performing arts or you understand what I'm saying I hope and that in that process of going into the transcendental realm the struggle in one of the stages of the archetypal hero's journey is to bring back the boon for others and the problem remains how do you bring back the boon in a culture that's dead that's materialistically oriented hierarchically obsessed with power and surface level entertainment, distraction, addiction, 
all kinds of decrepit things that are taking hold in the world in a lot of ways. How do you bring forth something? And not only how do you bring it forth, how can you have it so it's received? And a lot of people can connect to something profound and then their work and their accomplishments of such is never absorbed. Vincent van Gogh is a perfect example of that. Uh, I, he did sell one painting to his brother, who I recall after reading his letters, and it was for a very small amount, and he died a fail. He died thinking it was a failure. Black Elk, also, from the accounts that I've read, he died believing that he had failed in the vision of uniting the sacred hoop of the Lakota and the native people in overcoming the Waisichu, a essential slang term for the white people, Waisichu meaning buff, is what term they use for the masses of the buffalo because the whites coming to the native people were like that. It was just like an endless mass of people. They used to say it would take two weeks to uh, traverse an entire buffalo herd. That's how massive they were at the time. And so Black Elk also died from the accounts I've read feeling that he was a failure in not uniting his people to overcome the tyranny and genocide and oppression and um, degradation of the white American European culture. And so there's this thing that's very real, right? Of You can connect to God through your paintings as Van Gogh did. And the most profound work, if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Amsterdam and go to the Van Gogh Museum, and it's a really beautiful thing because he used he's the Vincent Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam is right across the street from the Rijksmuseum, which houses all the, uh, you know, the medieval and uh, prior to Van Gogh work. And he used to go there and look at all the paintings and, you know, be inspired by that. And then died thinking he was a failure and then they built him his own museum that always has a huge line outside of it for just his work alone that's right outside of that museum i just that to me is a really profound beautiful poignant thing of just wow this person was able to connect to the soul of what krishna is referring to and bring it forth in their artwork not in his behavior as a person from my understanding of him, but through his artwork. And so much so that it was, they say, we can't put this in the Rijksmuseum. It needs its own museum and we'll put it right next to the Rijksmuseum. I just, there's something about that. It's like, wow. But coming back to what Stephen Pressfield's talking about, there's this psychological payment, psychological reward the spiritual reward and the conventional reward yeah he never got the attention he never got the fame or the money and on some level seems like he was preoccupied perhaps with that from my understanding of what he expressed in his letters to his brother theo if i'm remembering his brother's name correctly and at the same time, though, the work itself is the reward. And that's what we want to shift our emphasis to as someone practicing yoga, as an artist, musician, humanitarian. The work is the payoff, not the outcome of it. Because look at Black Elk, right? I've talked a lot about Black Elk on the podcast here. And the premise is he could die believing he was a failure, but then his account of his life that was captured in Black Elk Speaks became a message to the world 
that the Lakota people were profoundly, profoundly wise and come from extraordinarily rich, deep culture and were not just a bunch of people, primitive people running around subhuman as the Europeans and the Americans described them as. They were profoundly, like, listen to what they have to share in their way of orientation with each other and ritual and, and mythology. Whoa. And he even was recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church a few years ago. <laughs> it's, it's profound, right? Because you never know what's going to happen. And maybe he doesn't experience the fruits of his labor as Black Elk. Maybe he is reincarnated as a different being and is able to experience what value that was. Nonetheless, without attachment. So, as I was talking a lot about Joseph Campbell and respects to all of this, as he studied very, very deeply all the Eastern mythology, I remembered there was this really beautiful poem that sums up his teachings on the quest for awakening which is very much what the Bhagavad Gita is the hero's journey of Arjuna and his quest to awakening to higher consciousness and it's short to the point and powerful I don't know how short it is but we're gonna read it now so this is from the Joseph Campbell companion reflections on the art of living the privilege of a lifetime is being who you are. What you have to do, you do with play. Life is without meaning. You bring the meaning to it. The meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Being alive is the meaning. The warrior's approach is to say yes to life. Yes to it all. Participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. We cannot cure the world of sorrows, but we can choose to live in joy. When we talk about settling the world's problems, we are barking up the wrong tree. The world is perfect. It's a mess. It has always been a mess. We are not going to change it. Our job is to straighten out our own lives. We must be willing to get rid of the life we have planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. The old skin has to be shed before the new one can come. If we fix on the old, we get stuck. When we hang onto any form, we are in danger of putrefication. Hell is life drying up. The hoarder, the one in us that wants to keep, to hold on must be killed. If we're hanging onto the form now, we're not going to have the form next. You cannot make an omelet without breaking eggs. Destruction before creation. Out of perfection, nothing can be made. Every process involves breaking something up. The earth must be broken to bring forth life. If the seed does not die, there is no plant. Bread results from the death of wheat. Life lives on lives. Our own life lives on the acts of other people. If you are life worthy, you can take it. 
What we are really living for is the experience of life, both the pain and the pleasure. The world is a match for us, and we are a match for the world. Opportunities to find deeper powers within ourselves come when life seems most challenging. Negativism to the pain and the ferocity of life is negativism to life itself. We are not there until we can say, yeah, to it all. To take a righteous attitude toward anything is to denigrate it. Awe is what moves us forward. As you proceed through life, following your own path, birds will shit on you. Do not bother to brush it off. Getting a comedic view of your situation gives you spiritual distance. Having a sense of humor saves you. Eternity is a dimension of here and now. The divine lives within you. Live from your own center. Your real duty is to go away from the community to find your bliss. The society is the enemy when it imposes its structures on the individual. On the dragon, there are many scales. Every one of them says, thou shalt. Kill the dragon, thou shalt. When one has killed that dragon, one has become the child. Breaking out is following your bliss pattern. Quitting the old place, starting your hero journey, following your bliss, you throw off yesterday as the snake sheds its skin. Follow your bliss. The heroic life is living the individual adventure. There is no security in following the call to adventure. Nothing is exciting if you know what the outcome is going to be. To refuse the call means stagnation. What you don't experience positively, you will experience negatively. You enter the forest at the darkest point where there is no path. Where there is some, a way or a path, it is someone else's path. You are not on your own path. If you follow someone else's way, you are not going to realize your potential. The goal of the hero trip down to the jewel point is to find those levels in the psyche that open, 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 and finally open to the mystery of yourself being Buddha consciousness or the Christ. That is the journey. It's about finding that still point in your mind where commitment drops away. It is by going down into the abyss that we recover the treasures of life. Where you stumble, there lies your treasure. The very cave you are afraid to enter turns out to be the source of what you are looking for. The damned thing in the cave that was so dreaded has become the center. You find the jewel and it draws you off. In loving the spiritual, you cannot despise the earthly. The purpose of the journey is compassion. When you have come past the pairs of opposites, you have reached compassion. The goal is to bring the jewel back to the world to join the two things together. 
the separateness apparent in the world is secondary. Beyond that world of opposites is an unseen but experienced unity and identity in us all. Today, the planet is the only proper in-group. You must return with the bliss and integrate it. The return is seeing the radiance everywhere. Sri Ramakrishna said, Do not seek illumination until unless you seek it as a man whose hair is on fire seeks a pond. If you want the whole thing, the gods will give it to you. But you must be ready for it. The goal is to live with godlike composure on the full rush of energy, like Dionysus riding the leopard without being torn to pieces. A bit of advice given to a young Native American at the time of his initiation. As you go the way of life, you will see a great chasm. Jump. It is not as wide as you think. Okay, I lied. That was actually quite a long <laughs> passage. <laughs> but nonetheless, extraordinarily relevant to where we are going and what the Bhagavad Gita is trying to teach us. Remembering the privilege of lifetimes being who you are. To be fully yourself. But fully yourself, not just in your personality but what lies beneath what you have to do you do with play unattachment this is not about accomplishing a mission this is about you're enjoying life <laughs> and people questing for the meaning are oftentimes confused because to experience life viscerally is the meaning to be in that place of rapture and joy and play. That is the meaning. That validates and redeems the world of pain. As they say, the warrior's approach is to say yes to life. And that's a teaching that comes from, actually, I believe, Frederick Nietzsche. He says, approach whatever chaos and crisis that you encounter in life with complete acceptance and embrace of it and say to yourself it's exactly what I need to have happen and it's precisely necessary and part of the journey and I think this is a very necessary thing to also accept within ourselves right this teaching because if you were to go watch a movie and you it's an adventure movie and the guy is just sitting at his house all day long doing the dishes and never has any conflict or confrontation with anyone or anything, it would be a really bad movie. <laughs> so it's important that the hero and the, the character, you know, the protagonist has some kind of explosion or he goes crazy or everyone around him is starting to die or he has to save the world or, you know, so on and so forth. And the more obscene and absurd it becomes, the better. <laughs> so don't hold back. Right, But also, don't try to solve the problem. Right, That's what they're saying here. When we talk about settling the world's problems, we're barking up the wrong tree. The world is perfect. It's a mess. It's always been a mess. When has it not been a mess? If you listen to Fox News, you might start to think that 
there was a moment when America was great. <laughs> and it's like, at what point? Was that when there was uh, the genocide of the indigenous people, uh, the enslavement of black people, oppressing of women, um, total corruption of industrialization, uh, violence against black people, which still continues, and so on and so forth. The, but we're not trying to fix anyone or anything here, because we understand that it's a mess. And our job is to straighten out our own lives. Okay. What is it that I have to orient myself towards? What is Life doesn't need to be saved or fixed. It needs vitality brought into it. That's the teaching. And we've been conditioned in a lot of ways to think we have to follow this person or that person and that there's a whole protocol for how to do it. But we have to get rid of that life. It has to die. If we hang on to it, it becomes sick and stagnant. And that's what hell is. It's a state of consciousness of death. T.S. Eliot, the... What is the poem? Wasteland. So that's the state of consciousness that he is pushing forth in that poetry. So the person that's hoarding and holding everything inside, that's clinging to life, not willing to give, as the Bhagavad Gita says, that person is a thief, a hoarder. And here, they're using very intense mythological language. That person needs to be killed. Because in a lot of ancient, uh, traditional, mythological rituals, people were actually killed. According to Joseph Campbell, there was a tradition amongst the aboriginal people. I don't know which specific tribes, when, or how many, but they would, <laughs> they would rip the b young boy from his mother when he was about to be initiated into manhood and they would put on these crazy masks and rip the boy from the mother and he would have to fight and kind of symbolically kill the person with the mask by kind of like beating them up or something like that he had to fight back and he's terrified they come in the middle of the night and if he failed to do it they would kill him and eat him that's gnarly, right? But there's also a lot of gnarly things in Australia. Saltwater crocodiles and funnel web spiders and crazy snakes. So they don't have time for people that aren't willing to activate themselves, right? The hoarder, the one in us who wants to keep, who wants to cling to the mother, to the safety zone, that person needs to be killed. But th in this poem here, you know, we're talking more a little more metaphorically. Uh, and will continue destruction before creation understanding this process of duality of, of things informing one another you can't have one without the other so every process involves breaking something up very simple if the seed doesn't die there's no plant bread results from the death of wheat life lives on itself that's harmony within nature of nature feeding on itself and it's an interesting study as i walked out to the studio this morning there's multiple dead mice <laughs> between my house and the studio i have two cats their names are quetzal and polka one is white which is quetzal and polka which is black and it's the precise names are cats catly polka and um <laughs> uh quetzal quetzal cattle i didn't name them my friend mabel did and they're, those are the Mayan goddess of the dark and the, and the light duality, right? It's like the Mayan representation of the Tao Te Ching. And 
it's interesting because they kill I noticed this the cats they go out and they kill other animals birds and especially mice and chipmunks and they don't eat them they just all they do is they attack them injure them and while the animal's suffering they torment it and torture it and play with it and when I see this I try to free the chipmunks and mice I feel bad and I scold the cats but there's something programmed within them that's natural and in actually in harmony with nature that tells them to literally injure, torture, and kill an animal and play with it, but then don't eat it. So that's a very fascinating thing because if a human being does that, they are a monstrosity and they're sent to prison and it's like, whoa, that person sick and sociopathic. But if a cat does it, that's what cats do. And then I remember I saw this thing about penguins, and I'm not making this up. Penguins engaging in everything from, like, necrophilia to, like, to eating cannibalism of one another in Antarctica. And the scientist observing this was so disturbed by it that he, like, encoded the the um, account of this in, like, a symbolic hieroglyphic-type language so that people wouldn't immediately read it in his account. And, you know, this is something that's been... Um, documented what am i saying here i think that there is something within the animal nature right that is pretty from a humanistic open-hearted higher activated center pretty sick and twisted but it's something that i i'm sharing because i think like people get the sense like oh we got to go back to what's natural and everything in nature is perfect and it is but it's also totally disturbing I mean, like, the fact that my cat's killing this animal, and it's not eating it. It takes a, maybe a bite out of it, not even. They just kill it for fun, and then they're torturing it and playing with it while it's suffering. So, just to share that, because that is harmonious, but it's also twisted. And at the same time, the message of that is not oh, become like a psychopath. No, the message of that is to rise above our animal impulsive nature, which is what Krishna is speaking to Arjuna about. He's saying, yeah, look at the world. It's pretty dark. You have friends and family just murdering each other. You need to fight in this war and overcome yourself for the benefit of others. <laughs> I like this one here. The world is a match for us. We are a match for the world. I like that. It's like life never gives you more than you can handle. I don't know who said that. That's not been my experience. <laughs> Although at the same time it has. But uh, this is one of the most profound things that you could probably just take a photo of this quote and have it tattooed on you and it would be very helpful. Opportunities to find deeper powers within ourselves come when life seems most challenging. So as my teacher says, if they're paying attention to you, be grateful. And someone asks him, who is they? And he goes, oh, you know, my schizophrenic friends. <laughs> or, you know, the forces and energies of life, they're all of a sudden creating madness in your world. Remember, we're saying yes to everything, including the crisis, and that this is an opportunity. As I said prior, according to Joe Campbell, the what's Japanese or Chinese symbol, crisis and opportunity are intertwined. So I like this one. To take a righteous attitude towards anything is to denigrate it. I actually don't even fully comprehend it. It seems like a sense of self-righteousness, a sense of figuring out as I'm talking here. It's like a sense of like, oh, those cats are killing my animals. Those penguins are sexual deviants. 
self-righteousness, a sense of like higher than that. But that is denigrating God, life, life is God interchangeably. And to be more in a state of awe is what moves us forward. Getting a comedic view of your situation gives you spiritual distance. That is true. <laughs> so here it says your real duty is to go away from the community to find your bliss. You know what, and the teaching of that, as someone that lives in community and emphasizes building community, this is what the Native Americans uh, practiced with the vision quest in Lakota. I believe they call it Ombechela. I think that's what it's called. Crying for a vision is the translation. So to find true understanding of oneself requires solitude. And I like what Einstein said that solitude, while painful in my youth, has become so beautiful in my elder years. So if you're able to find, you know, it's a frightening process and alienating and ostracizing. Think about I was talking about with uh, Crazy Horse, right? person just wants to be alone they're they're deep in something it's the aoka it's not really about the happy-go-lucky and totally conforming to everything there's someone that's very deep inside and they connect to it only through that place at the same time crazy horse being a profound servant towards his people being a prime example of someone who gives and that's the benefit, I think, of going away from the group is you're able to then come back with a newfound appreciation, gratitude, and respect, and humility, and compassion for people. And here he says, the dragon has many scales, and every one of them thou shalt. And so that's a teaching from Thus Spoke Zarathustra, book by Friedrich Nietzsche. I never read it, but I've read about it. And the idea is that there's an Osho card in the deck that also is a translation of this story. But it's a very beautiful story, a very empowering story, and it's relevant to anyone, anywhere, at any time. Speaking to something about the soul, which is that you were born into the world as a camel. And the job of the camel... It's very strong, doesn't need much water, it's just in service. It can just help with whatever is happening. The society is the enemy when it imposes its structures on the individual. The society imposes on the camel. The camel just carries wherever you go, you pull it, it goes that way. But through the strength of the service, the camel becomes empowered and undergoes a transformation. And through that process of transformation, the camel becomes a lion. And now the lion is very fierce and doesn't give a shit about the rules and just does what is going to do. <laughs> Throws off the shackles and imprisonment of conformity and society and moves forward out into the world with the lion's roar. And I believe the Buddha used something along the phrase the lion's roar, right? Once he had activated and achieved that state of nirvana 
And then the lion's job is to kill a dragon. And so the lion comes across a dragon. And as I say here, on every scale of the dragon, there is a inscription that says, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. And so what you have here is the ferocity arising and awakening within you and coming towards rules and regulations and cultural norms and impositions by society, authority figures, and hierarchy. And uh, you have, once again, on, the, on the one scale, you have Fox News telling you that we need to bomb more brown people and take all their oil. And then you have the Catholic Church saying that this is the only way to find God, or you have any religious authoritarian structure. I grew up, or was initially raised Catholic, so I, I tend to pick on the Catholic Church a little bit. <laughs> but the point being that the idea is that you have to go forth and kill and annihilate the culturally conditioned programming inside of you that is preventing you from your authenticity as a spiritual being in the world. And then when one has killed that dragon, the lion is transformed into a child. Innocence. Gentleness. <laughs> Hilarity. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was with Makoa this morning, my son, and I hold him up to the mirror, and he's just laughing hysterically, staring at himself in the mirror. <laughs> Extremely cute. And that's the premise of our transformation is to come back to the innocence of a child. And as Christ said, right, unless you become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have to go forth and fight your demons, which is the society which is imposing its structures on you. But you have to come back, or rather that process leads to innocence. I think that Timothy Leary on some level would be a good example of that. Totally destructive towards institutions and totally wild in that way. But... I, uh, but you ever watch him? He's just smiling and laughing hysterically all the time. It's just the whole thing is a huge joke to him. Not putting him on a pedestal whatsoever at all, but just saying that that's kind of an example of someone that goes forth and annihilates the cultural norms <laughs> and then has a wonderful sense of humor about it afterwards. And then this is also connects to another Hindu story <coughs> where there is a tiger that is been lost from his mother and falls into a herd of sheep and starts baying like sheep and acting like sheep and gets herded around and it's a very funny sight because there's a tiger and he's eating sheep hay and just feels messed up and then uh, he goes out somehow breaks away from the herd for a moment and a giant tiger comes up and is killing the sheep and stops and he sees the tiger and he's like what the heck is going on with this tiger does he not realize that he's a tiger and he's pre pretending to be a sheep and then he just drags he smacks the tiger in the face the small one grabs him and holds his reflection up to a pond and says look do you see what you are you are not a sheep you are a ferocious tiger. And then he shoves sheep meat in his mouth and the medicine is really strong and the tiger throws up but then has an experience of recognition of what he actually is and then is able to move forward as 
what he actually holds inside of himself and not just conforming to the energy and patterns of the culture around him. <coughs> so, you throw off yesterday as the snake sheds its skin. There is no security in following the call to adventure. Nothing is exciting if you know what the outcome is going to be. <laughs> that is an extremely helpful phrase to remember when you're in those situations when suddenly everything is going wrong. But that is also said to be the first step in the adventure. Everything has to go wrong. Remember, if it doesn't all go wrong in every possible thing that gets messed up, then of what use is the story? It's just something that becomes very dull. So it's supposed to all get messed up and go wrong. That's the essence of an adventure. And there's no security in that. Because if you know what's going to happen, then where is the, the rush and the thrill for that? So we need to be open to the mystery. You enter the forest at the darkest point where there is no path. That is often been said as a metaphor for entering our unconscious, our own unconscious. What is it that exists within ourselves? We're not talking about an external force. We're talking about what is in our own heart, in our own mind, in our own unconscious. There is no path there. No one else has been there. No one knows what's inside of you. That's your territory that only you can enter and no one else can really guide you there. They can provide little tips and tools and things and there can be quite a bit of help. But I found there's a moment at the end of the day where it's like, you're going to need to figure this part out. And that to expect someone else to have the answer for it or to provide the a map for that terrain it says right here if you follow someone else's way you're not going to realize your own potential and you are not on your own path where there is a way or path it is someone else's path so it's about finding that still point in your mind where commitment drops away that is a teaching from the buddha of the first temptation of the Buddha was violence, war against him. The second temptation was sexual uh, fantasy. The third temptation was, okay, we'll make you really, really powerful and give you whatever you want desire there in that respect then the fourth temptation was who will know who will know what you have achieved and he puts his hand down he goes ah the earth is my witness and that is a they say that th the teaching of that is when you come into the place of stillness of that unfolding of the mystery of yourself there's a moment where the pole of social expectation to be somebody and do something for someone and fulfill some sort of role is tempts you to return back to the world it's your last call you can come back to the world you're going to leave us don't leave us oh you've gone off on the deep end 
oh you shouldn't have done that so on this kind of thing don't go away to that country you know you're gonna don't this sort of thing commitment obligation social responsibility <coughs> and the the goal the journey is to come to the place where you are released into the moment and there is no longer a gravitational pull or if there is it is no longer impacting you in the way prior freedom where you stumble there lies your treasure extremely helpful information wherever there be a mistake there and forth lies your treasure arjuna goes out to fight and he falls to the ground i can't do it he has stumbled and lost his confidence as a warrior and his purpose and his direction and focus as a yogi and where when he falls down who arrives krishna to tell him the teaching that the, the most powerful teaching that one could ever receive <coughs> and i used to tell people and i still do that the worst things that ever happened to me were always the best things that ever happened to me didn't seem like that when I was going through it, but it definitely turned out to be the case. I've had a couple where I thought to myself, there's no way this is going to work out. But it always does somehow. In loving the spiritual, you cannot despise the earthly. And this is what we are talking about in the last podcast with connecting with our humanistic, grounded, selves even though we are going off into extreme higher consciousness and the purpose of this journey is compassion that cannot be overemphasized enough <clears throat> listen to dilgo kinsei rinpoche talk about compassion the heart of the tibetan tradition is compassion you could say it's the heart of virtually every tradition, but I feel the Tibetans in particular have such a depth and understanding and focus on it that it's extraordinarily special. Why? Because when you have come past the pairs of opposites, you've reached compassion. When we're caught in me and you, us and them, compassion is, no, is not very useful. But if we're trying to overcome and transcend that, to have care for others and love for others and kindness and peace, generosity, values, and higher capacity, then compassion is the doorway into that realm. So the purpose of the journey of getting rocked where you stumble, of terrifying things happening to you and getting eaten alive and so on, is so that you can begin to cultivate and practice this compassion and understanding that we are all fighting a very difficult battle, all of us. No one is exempt. And to have compassion can help restore Today the planet is the only proper in-group. Because prior there was us and them. You'd have, for instance, Right, you have uh, many people from different traditions, different tribes. Pro at some point on earth, you could argue maybe everybody where they have tremendous love and compassion for their families and their friends and their community, 
But then when confronted with other communities and people that look different, talk different, you know, pray to quote unquote a different God and so on, there's violence initiated towards them. Um, Christ is a really good example of someone that broke free from that because he's saying, love your enemies. That is the teaching. Love your enemies. So the planet, the entire planet is our community, is our family. So this is a attempt to resolve the differentiation and separateness that we feel as a Russia, Ukraine, the whole situation. Do not seek illumination unless you seek it as a man whose hair is on fire seeks a pond. The first mistake is not to go. The second mistake is to not go all the way, they say. And what Ramakrishna here, I suppose, is saying is pretty straightforward, is that you need to pursue it with a ferociousness. This is not like... This is not a New Agey kind of cuddle type just like went and saw some meditation thing at a festival or something not judging any of those things as they can be doorways but saying that this is you're recognizing that you are burning inside you are on fire there is something happening and you need to resolve it like asap and that needs to become your entire focus and attitude and listen to david goggins that guy might not be seeking illumination, but if he had hair, it would be on fire. Like, holy God. <laughs> pursuit pursuit of something. You're driven to a point where you seem insane to people. <laughs> you seem totally psychotic. But that's because they're not seeking the same thing. They're seeking comfort. They're seeking normality. They're seeking conformity whether they admit it or not. They're seeking acceptance and approval from others. And our focus needs to be, because we at the same time, all of us, myself included, seek those things at different moments. We are all highly susceptible to those things. And we need to uproot those things from within ourselves with, uh, as they say, you need to kill the dragon. You need to kill it. It's an intense act. And you need to do so with the intensity as if you're on fire and you're looking for water to put it out. And... Most people in the world choosing the path of least resistance is why I've, as I've been saying, I really like the mentality of the Navy SEALs because that's exactly what this is. I mean, they put those guys in ice water for 30 minutes. They don't let them sleep. They just keep going and going. And it's like you, the only re way you'd ever get through that is you're seeking a goal and your hair, you're totally in insufferable pain. But the thing is so much more important than the pain that you overcome it. And Ramakrishna here is saying that this is the same path of yoga. And if you want the whole thing, the gods will give it to you, but you must be ready for it. So train yourself accordingly. Do not sleep in. Do not overeat, as Krishna says to Arjuna. And the goal here is to live with godlike composure on the full rush of energy like Dionysus riding the leopard without being torn to pieces. That's a good one, huh? So, mustering everything within you, bringing forth kundalini, adrenaline, dopamine, and activating and moving it towards something extraordinarily insane, fierce, riding a leopard without being torn to pieces. <laughs> But at the same time, right, we're talking about this is an inner journey of 
connecting to the forces within us, unleashing them and going with them as opposed to allowing them to destroy us. And there's, there's a quote that says, bring forth what is inside you or what is inside you will destroy you from the Bible. And that's a beautiful quote. I definitely can identify with that of being in a state of consciousness where something is moving through me and if I don't find a way to channel it out, it's going to literally take my life. Okay, this is something I can understand. And then this very last thing is just really beautiful. He says, a bit of advice given to a young Native American at the time of initiation. As you go the way of light, you will see a great chasm. Jump is not as wide as you think. And Terrence McKenna says that the trick of the shaman is to jump off the epic, massive waterfall and go through the terror of realizing you're falling and then you hit the ground and it's a giant pillow bed. It's super soft and everything is okay. And Chognam Trungpa used to say, here is the bad news. You're falling. Here's the good news. There is no ground. <laughs> so what does that mean that we are falling and there is no ground? That was a very long intro and I'm going to get to the Bhagavad Gita now. So I wanted to share that. I will come back more to that book and things later on. But I really like the that passage is encompasses a warrior's mentality very much and the trials and tribulations that you go through and why you're going through them and the attitude to bring forth to those trials and tribulations. Chapter 7, Wisdom and Realization. The Blessed Lord said, Listen, Arjuna, I will tell you how you can know me beyond doubt by practicing non-attachment and surrendering yourself to me. I will teach you the essence of this wisdom and its realization. When you come to master this, there is nothing further that needs to be known. Of 10,000 men, perhaps one man strives for perfection. That's exactly what I was just saying, where most people are not feeling like they're on fire and they have to put the flame out. Most people are looking for comfort, security, normality, conformity. They don't care about truth. But if you care about truth, you will be driven into something that will make you an outlier and make you look extreme and make you look psychotic and crazy and so on and so forth and blah, blah, blah. And that's part of the, it's simultaneously a curse and a badge of honor that I think you can wear on the path. Of 10,000 who strive, perhaps one man knows me in truth. Earth, fire, water, and wind, air, mind, and understanding, and the eye sense these are the eight aspects of my physical nature. This is my lower nature, but beyond this, I have another, higher nature, the life that sustains all beings in the world. As I was talking about with the cats, there's this, there's something, there's a lower nature to us that we're not exempt from. When human beings go out and kill other human beings, first of all, what makes it any different than my cats killing a mouse? And... I, in the last podcast, we were talking about this previous chapter. It says that when you can look at all beings, a fly, a god, and saint, so on, a sinner, the quality, then you are in activation of this truth. And this is an interesting thing. People say, like, how can someone kill somebody? How can my cats kill the mouse? 
there's something impulsive within our lower nature through our sense perceptions or physical reality that condemns us to act in this way it's not a sickness caused necessarily by society so much as it is someone failing to discipline their lower nature and it is unfortunately perfectly natural to do things like that if you are succumbing to your lower nature and there's all kinds of reasons we can justify and exonerate our lower nature behavior that person was bad they called my god a jerk they stole my land they slept with my wife they stole my money they tried to kill me vengeance is always something that is available to us if i was a vengeful person or rather better way to put it there's a lot of people that i feel i should take vengeance on right i'm i'm kind of comically saying this from this like the lower nature but then when you place in perspective these teachings of forgiveness and loving your enemy as the highest calling of value then absolutely not you don't take vengeance across people and i think it's very interesting because if you look at a lot of uh hollywood movies and ones that are quote-unquote spiritual like the matrix or all the marvel movies and stuff that have this kind of undertone of the hero's journey and there's like this deeper thing and i observe people like to read like oh there's a lot of spiritual teachings in those they're all about revenge they're all about vengeance they're all about like killing people who are bad <laughs> and i'm i'm not you know they don't say i'm acting without attachment and i'm killing because we are eternal i haven't observed that so much in those films like what krishna is telling arjuna i've seen a lot more of just like let's kill that guy because he killed my parents <laughs> whatever though it's fine movies you know let's focus on the bhagavad gita and not hollywood but i was just reflecting on this as i was watching some movies recently i'm like everyone is constantly trying to get revenge and it's held up on a pedestal in this culture and i've had moments where people have done some pretty dark messed up stuff to me not recently and in the grand scheme of things not that bad but just like the deep betrayal and you're like whoa and then if you are someone that's paying attention to hollywood you would say i must go out and take vengeance on this person but that's totally crazy no no that's not what we're trying to do here so that is why i esteem people like mahatma gandhi nelson mandela and I heard a story about Nelson Mandela. I do not know if it's true. I think it might not be. But nonetheless, the teaching of it is very relevant and important character value. Where there was a guard, they said they used to beat and urinate on him. And then when Nelson Mandela became president of South Africa, he ran into the guard in a cafe. And he, the guard saw him and became terrified. And Nelson Mandela like came up and was like really kind to him. And I think shook his hand. And the guard was so confused about why. And Nelson Mandela said something just along the lines of like that revenge is not within the it's not within my character. You can look it up and tell me if it's real or not. I don't know. But nonetheless, that's a value that I think people should esteem towards. And while Batman is a cool movie, the the what they're putting forth is little confusing at the end of the day. Vengeance. <laughs> Anyways getting really distracted here by Hollywood okay 
Krishna says, Know that it is the womb from which all beings arise. The universe is born within me, and within me will be destroyed. There is nothing more fundamental than I, Arjuna. All worlds, all beings are strung upon me like pearls on a single thread. I am the taste in water, the light in the moon and sun, the sacred syllable Om in the Vedas, the sound and air. I am the fragrance of the earth, the manliness in men, the brilliance in fire, the life in the living, and the abstinence in ascetics. I am the primal seed within all beings, Arjuna. The wisdom of those who know the splendor of the high and mighty. I am the strength of the strong man who is free of desire and attachment. I am desire itself when desire is consistent with duty. All states of being, whether marked by sattva or rajas or tamas, proceed from me. They are in me, not I in them. Because most men are deluded by the states of being, they cannot recognize me who am above, supreme, eternal. One thing I want to touch here as a teaching from my time working in Vipassana meditation taught by Goenka. Uh, he's saying that <clears throat> all states of being, whether marked by sattva, rajas, or tama tamas, idea, right, tamas, tamasic is you're very sluggish and lazy and apathetic. Rajasic is like you're crazed-ass warrior and you're just going out to fight. Sattvic is very shanti, peaceful equanimous nonetheless he's saying that those things are in me but i am not in them he's referring that there's something beyond all of that where even those states of consciousness even if they're blissed out mystical states are actually also clouds and not the sky itself and this reminds me of the tibetan tonka paintings where you have uh, the different realms you have the hell realm the animal realm the hungry ghost realm the human realm and then you have the two realms of the gods fighting one another and then you have mara the god of illusion demon of illusion rather gripping the whole wheel and however uh in each uh section you have the buddha standing there peacefully and the teaching right is that these states of consciousness whether they're hellish normal blissful whatever they are craving desire aversion you know sexual indulgence whatever it is or even like states of mysticism all of those are not the truth those are all held by mara yet the buddha is in all of them yet not defined by a single one of them it's just like the cl the, the sky right is always blue but sometimes it gets cloudy and dark and it rains. Other times there's like the northern lights and stuff and whatever. It doesn't matter because what we're searching for is that clarity. And they say something like in Zen where you, I, oh my God, I had a mystical experience. And the Zen master goes, okay, keep meditating. Don't you want to talk about it? No. <laughs> so I, I think this is relevant because in Vipassana they teach you this because, you know, there was this one time in Vipassana where I was sitting for two hours straight and went into a state like where my entire body dissolved and there was just nothing but like flowing, beautiful vibrations. But then even that too passes. Everything is transient, including those blissed out states. And if you are finding yourself craving and seeking that state, regardless of what it is or how divine it was, 
you're missing the teaching that yoga is equanimity and equanimity is embraces rajasic tamasic sattvic painful peaceful mystical hellish states of consciousness but it is not necessarily of those states of consciousness it is equanimity which is enveloping those conscious those states But those men who turn to me can penetrate beyond this wondrous power of mine, this magic created by the three gunas. Others are deluded by my power. They do not attempt to find me, and in their ignorance, sink in demonic evil. There are four kinds of virtuous men who worship me, Arjuna. The man in distress. <laughs> that sounds like Ramakrishna, the guy on fire. <laughs> the man who seeks power. The man who seeks wisdom and the sage. Of these four, the sage is the most praiseworthy, unattached, steadfast. That man is supremely beloved by me as I am by him. All these are noble-minded, but the sage is my very self. Calm, untroubled, he dwells in the ultimate goal in me. At the end of his many lives, the sage unites with me, thinking, Krishna is all that is. Great souls like this are rare. I think just to hear that teaching is extraordinarily profound, and one is very fortunate just to come across that. Men whose wisdom is darkened by desires, men who are hemmed in by the limits of their own natures take refuge in other gods. But whatever their form of reverence, whatever god a sincere devotee chooses to worship, I grant him an unswerving faith. Empowered by his faith, that man earnestly seeks the God's favor and obtains the things he desires because I myself have ordained it. But fleeting is the reward that men of small minds are given. They will go to the gods they worship, but my worshipers come to me. Though I am unmanifest, fools think that I have a form, unaware of my higher existence which is permanent and supreme. On a certain level, this to me feels like idol worship, which is why the prophet Muhammad in the Islamic faith chose not to be depicted so that people would not manif would not worship his form, which ironically became <laughs> people in that tradition wanting to kill people for depicting the form, making him like the ultimate idol so important that he couldn't be <laughs> worshipped. <laughs> Or couldn't be uh, depicted. The whole thing is very, very ironic. Religion is a very ironic thing. Veiled in my mystery and power, I am perceived by most men. Their deluded minds cannot see me. The unborn, the changeless, the undying. I know all beings who are past and all who live now, Arjuna, and all are yet to be, but I am beyond all knowing. All beings are born to ignorance, ruled by aversion and craving. This, Arjuna, is the primal duality that keeps them bound. But when a man is released from dualities, he can act purely without attachment and can serve me with all his heart. Those who take refuge in me, striving for release from old age and death, know absolute freedom and the self and the nature of action. Those who know me and the nature of beings of gods and of worship are always with me in spirit, even at the hour of their death. Chapter 8. Absolute Freedom what is this absolute freedom, Krishna? What is the self? 
What is the true nature of action, the nature of beings and gods? Teach me the way of worship, what it is here in the body, and how at the hour of death can a man be with you in spirit. Krishna replies, Freedom is union with the deathless. The self is the essence of all things. Its creative power called action causes the world to be. About beings know that they die. About gods know that the supreme person and know that true worship is I myself here in this body. Whoever in his final moment, moments thinks of me only is sure to enter my state of being once his body is dead. Whatever the state of being that a man may focus upon at the end, when he leaves his body to that state of being, he will go. This is very much the teaching of the Tibetans that having a... your My understanding in Buddhism is that they don't believe in a soul. And as I said prior, Buddhism is a reaction against Hinduism, against the ritual and the hierarchy and the caste system and the perversions that it took on from perhaps the original yogic teachings. And nonetheless, they say that you have a state of consciousness that's like a stream and whatever it's focusing towards is what it will go to. And that the moment in your death is extraordinarily important that you focus it in the right way. And if you don't, you can go in a very not good direction. Uh, and it appears that Krishna is informing Arjuna that that is exactly the case from his understanding as well. Therefore, Arjuna, meditate on me at all times and fight. <coughs> With your mind intent on me, you will come to me, never doubt it. Strong in the practice of yoga, with a mind that is rooted in me and in nothing else, you will reach the supreme person that I am. Focus, right? Talking about single point of focus. Meditate on the guide, the giver of all, the primordial poet, smaller than an atom, unthinkable, brilliant as the sun. If you do this at the hour of your death with an unmoving mind, drawing your breath up between your eyebrows, you will reach the person that I am. I will teach you about the state called the eternal, the absolute, which those who strive toward me enter desireless, free from attachments. Closing the nine gates of the body. I am honestly not at all sure what the nine gates of the body are. We know the chakra centers, but who knows what nine gates of the body really are. I'll look that one up. Keeping the attention in the heart, drawing the breath to the forehead with the mind absorbed, one-pointed, uttering the sacred om, which itself is freedom. Uttering the sacred om, which itself is freedom. Om itself is freedom. Uttering the sacred om, which itself is freedom. Oh. Focused on me as you leave the body, you attain the ultimate goal. For men whose minds are forever focused on me, whose love has gone, grown deep through meditation, I am easy to reach, Arjuna. So this is an interesting part that I'm coming across here because he's saying that if you're focused on me and your love has gone deep, then it's easy. And you just need to focus on saying the word Om and drawing your breath to the top of your forehead and focus and you will find me. 
it kind of makes the whole thing seem a little uh, simplistic. Not and that wasn't the right word because they say that it is simple. It's the most simple thing. It's like looking for your glasses, but realizing you're wearing them. They say in Zen. And that's why the elder brother, one of Maestrum and Wells' teachers, said that the path is 99.9% unlearning. And a lot of teachers have said that. So it's interesting, though, as we go through this discussion of yoga and the process and the path, and you look at how people have striven in their own life with their practices and disciplines, it's interesting how simple he makes it describe. And in the really, you know, Step by step, do you want to utter Om as you leave the body, mind focused and one pointed? Maybe it's like weightlifting, where it's very simple. You pick the thing up, put it down, but it's not actually very easy. Although he says very in this specific word, Stephen Mitchell's translation, I am easy to reach. So I do not know. I have not died at this <laughs> in this life yet. Reaching me, these great souls attain the supreme perfection and are no longer reborn in this fleeting world of sorrow and pain. And I think that's an important thing to reflect upon, that while, you know, the world is beautiful, majestic, incredibly engaging and addictive in all kinds of ways, it is a world of sorrow and pain. What you want doesn't come. Even if you get it, it goes away. And most of the time, you're getting a whole lot of stuff you don't want. So, one needs to go through the process of purgation and being completely challenged and stuck to really grasp the reality that it is a world of sorrow and pain. If approached without the right yogic attitude, If you approach it from the right perspective, then you can become like Dionysus riding the leopard without getting torn to pieces. All realms up to the realm of Brahma are subject to rebirth. But those who attain me, Arjuna, will never be reborn again. And this is what the Tibetan Tonka painting is showing, right? There's even the mystical gods are in the cycle of samsara, right? All those chambers in the Tibetan Tonka painting, it's samsara. Even the gods up to Brahma. Knowing these two paths, Arjuna, the man of yoga at all times, resolute in his non-attachment, goes far beyond the merit gained from the study of the scriptures, from acts of worship or control or charity. Dying, he reaches the supreme primordial place. So I, to me, that's him basically saying once again that all those things are stepping stones to cross the other side, but they are not to be clung to or even the success that you activate from, let's say you open a yoga school and thousands of people, their lives are transformed. You could get very easily hung up on that. Oh my God. Right? But he's saying that even to go beyond the merit of that, and not from like, oh my God, I've done that, like becoming a giant egotistical person, but just like in a state of awe and, and, be, and amazement and genuine gratitude and happiness and peace and joy like really positive things like wow look what i did with with my life and how i helped so many people 
while that's extraordinarily important and recommended on the path according to these teachings it's also something to go beyond and i think in a lot of ways that's enticing inspiring intimidating terrifying mysterious and confusing in some way to go beyond right to go beyond being like a spiritual teacher helping people and doing all this stuff and that there's something far beyond and this one thing i really love about the hindu and the yogic tradition is speaking of these realms that are like the absolute right i like how they word it let's put it that way because all traditions talk about that chapter nine the secret of life oh it's no bad i get to the secret of life <laughs> the blessed lord said because you trust me arjuna i will tell you what wisdom is the secret of life know it and be free of suffering forever this is the supreme wisdom the knowing beyond all knowing experienced directly in a flash eternal and a joy to practice those who are without faith in my teaching cannot attain me they endlessly return to this world shuttling from death to death the secret of life is wisdom the embodiment of it is freedom from suffering forever I permeate all the universe in my unmanifest form. All beings exist within me, yet I am so inconceivably vast, so beyond existence, that though they are brought forth and sustained by my limitless power, I am not confined within them. Just as the all-moving wind, wherever it goes, always remains in the vastness of space, all beings remain within me. They are gathered back into my womb at the end of the cosmic cycle, 150,000 billion of your earthly years. <laughs> wonder where he got that number from. <laughs> and as a new cycle begins, I send them forth once again, pouring from my abundance the myriad forms of life. These actions do not bind me, Arjuna. I stand apart from them all, indifferent to their outcome, unattached, serene. Under my guidance, nature brings forth all beings, all things, animate or inanimate, and sets the whole universe in motion. Foolish people despise me in the human form that I take, blind to my true nature as the lord of all life and death. Their hopes and actions are vain, their knowledge is sheer delusion. Turning from the light, they fall into cruelty, selfishness, and greed. But the truly wise Arjuna, who dive deep into themselves, fearless, one-pointed, know me as their inexhaustible source. I love that passage. But the truly wise Arjuna, who dive deep into themselves, fearless, one-pointed, know me as the inexhaustible source. Dive deep into yourself. There are many methods, and all of them lead to Rome, lead to Krishna. And you must do so fearlessly. Dive into yourself. It is in yourself. And there are many methods, right? And what works for one person might not work for another person. I love doing this podcast. For me, it's very much a dive into my mind. And I won't say that it's let me to the inexhaustible source, although I can talk for a very long time, it appears. 
it does it's a technique right of of speaking of movement of energy this is my own personal reflection but i'm sharing this to encourage whoever is listening to find whatever it is that is calling you creatively to that is a jumping off point into the depth of yourself and to approach it with the fearlessness attitude of a warrior and you will find eventually the inexhaustible source we hope always chanting my praise steadfast in their devotion they make their lives an unending hymn to my endless love others on the path of knowledge know me as the many the one behind the faces of million gods they can see my face I am the ritual in the worship, the medicine in the mantra, the butter burnt in the fire, and I am the flames that consume it. I am the father of the universe and its mother, essence and goal of all knowledge, the refiner, the sacred Om, and the threefold Vedas. I am the beginning and the end, origin, dissolution, refuge, home, true lover, womb, and imperishable seed. I am the heat of the sun, I hold back the rain and release it. I am death and the deathless and all that is or is not. The righteous who follow the scriptures strictly, who drink their soma, are purified of their sins, who pray to be taken to heaven. Powerful poetry. And I like who drink their soma. This is an interesting question, right? Because what is soma? If you listen to Mike Crowley, who was ordained as a Tibetan Lama, but I believe born in England, and from his personal experience, which he alludes to, but doesn't explicitly say, it, Soma is mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms. And that he said that there are Tibetan initiation rites in the Vajradhanic path, the Vajradhanic path being the lightning bolt, lightning rod, instant illumination, where they would do specific rituals of taking mushrooms and that but it was given in a drink and then you go through a meditation process where you're brought into certain states of consciousness and uh his explanation for soma is the mushroom which obviously grows in cow poop and what is the sacred animal of india but the cow grows in cow poop that's how you know god has a very deep sense of humor that <laughs> god grows in cow poop so drink the soma right and it you know this is something it's actually interesting because sacramental use of psychoactive plants in the hindu tradition all the sadhus are smoking tons of weed also use datura and which i don't know much about but i know it's super dangerous and extremely intense and uh marijuana grows all through the himalayas i was walking when i was in annapurna and i would i stopped and i would cook food on a little camp stove and i'd be in a field of marijuana it's it's a it's part of the earth there grows and it seems to be directly linked to a lot of where these teachings of this infinite presence is coming from is probably people who are drinking their soma but they're saying to drink you know and there's a lot of reason to feel that it is mushrooms having this experience of divinity and they're doing these extreme practices when I was at Shivaratri uh, in Nepal, in Kathmandu, at Pashupatinath Temple, where they come, you know, there's sadhus, I have photos of the guys, one guy doesn't put his arm down for years. They, like, sit up in these swings that support their body as they become emaciated, and they let, like, they're standing on one leg, and it's a devotion to God. And 
the extreme like asceticism and like wearing of chains and super intense like whoa and they're all smoking out of the chillum ganja the whole time and you know they're using the plant as a way to access states of consciousness and further push them deeper into themselves into their discipline and practice and like these guys are totally somewhere else it was interesting because i had gotten dreadlocks uh right before then and i was walking there's like you know thousands of nepalese people and people from all over south in, uh south asia are coming who are hindu and i was walking and there was this one sadhu man the guy looked really crazy uh in a cool way really you know they're almost like performers in a certain sense and i as i was saying in the past podcast i do think some of them kind of are and they're kind they're just like they're like crazy dropout people and they're not all of them are saints (laughs) but there was one guy who had an amazing outfit i got a really good photo of him and i was walking and i was pretty far away i was probably like 30 20 yards away from him and he sees me and he makes eye contact with me he starts yelling at me and pointing in i believe uh well i don't know what language he was speaking it could have been hindi <laughs> everyone like the crowd like several hundred people turn and stare at me and i was like i'm not going near that guy <laughs> i was 20 years old at the time i think and i was no that's okay i don't know what that guy's all about so i turned to walk the other way but it was a very powerful moment coming in contact with the sadhu and yeah so they definitely drink their soma that's for sure so as krishna is talking about those who drink their soma they're purified of their sins they reach the world of the gods and enjoy an indescribable bliss although after eons of those vast and glorious pleasures when their merit is spent they fall back into the mortal world impelled by desire they achieve only what will pass away so that's that makes me think immediately about ramdas right where he's taking psychedelics and he's having this experience of going into the beyond and coming into contact with god and eventually he just says he got burnt out on it not like he got mentally uh, damaged or something but just like emotionally taxed like what is the point okay i take this and i come to a place of revelation but at the end of the day, as his teacher, Maharaji, says, it's better to become Christ than visit him. So you don't want to keep going up and down, up and down, because whoever comes up comes down in this world of duality. And this is what Krishna is talking about. You know, they take Soma, the purifier of their sins, pray to be taken to heaven. They reach the world of the gods, indescribable bliss, and then they fall back into the mortal world. And this is very much the teaching of the Tibetans, where it's very profound to be reborn as like an immaterial god but at the same time the revelation and the true work is in the human realm and that's why the dalai lama says how precious this human birth that's why the the real work and the real opportunity to step into this state of consciousness that these texts are talking about is in our human experience in the ordinary world not some kind of mystical state as vipassana is talking about it's not something drug psychedelic induced it's not some altered state of consciousness it's n- it's the unaltered state of consciousness right yeah but to those who meditate on me undistracted and worship me everywhere 
always, I will bring a reward that never can be lost. Arjuna, all those who worship other gods with deep faith are really worshiping me, even if they do not know it. <laughs> For I am the only object and the only enjoyer of worship, and they fall back because they cannot know me as I truly am. Worshiping the gods, men go to the gods. Worshiping spirits to the spirits, worshiping me, they come to me in the end. Any offering, a leaf, a flower, a fruit, a cup of water, I will accept it if given with a loving heart. Whatever you do, Arjuna, do it as an offering to me. Whatever you say or eat or pray or enjoy or suffer. In this way, you'll be freed from all the results of your actions, good or harmful, unfettered, untroubled. You will come to me. I am the same to all beings. I favor none and reject none. But those who worship me live within me and I live within them. I favor none and reject none. Self-explanatory. How to practice that in everyday life. Favor none and reject none. Even the heartless criminal, if he loves me with all his heart, remember Milarepa, will certainly grow into sainthood as he moves toward me on this path. Quickly that man becomes pure. His heart finds eternal peace. Arjuna, no one who truly loves me will ever be lost. So love, right? Love in the heart. The path is in the heart, not in the sky. True love. Love is the answer. Love is all you need. All those who love and trust me, even the lowest of the low, prostitutes, beggars, slaves, will attain the ultimate goal. So I like this because it's just a simple thing that Love is something that's inside of everyone, regardless of who you are and what you have done. Even the darkest of the dark, there is love there. No one is, you know, what is, what is it say? Um, what's, what's the sin when you're born in Christianity? It's mortal sin, the first sin or something like that or whatever. You know, this idea that there's something just inherently wrong with us. That's so much of a Judeo-Christian understanding of life that I've never resonated with. Uh, and Suzuki Roshi or DT Suzuki? Man, I cannot remember the name, but the Zen teacher who brought Zen to the West from Japan, he just was looking at it and goes, man against God? God against man? Man against nature? Nature against man? Very funny religion. <laughs> And what they do in Japan, where I've never been but read about, is they have gardens and Zen gardens where the blending of what is created by humans and the society that oriented and what is natural in the plants and the, the garden is not definable. And the teaching there of unity of things. So this idea that there's something inherently wrong with us in our nature is a very distorted perspective from the Eastern way of looking at life and very much my own. But up to you if you want to feel guilty about, you know, being natural. How much easier then for ordinary people or for those with pure hearts in this sad vanishing world, turn to me and find freedom. In this sad vanishing world, everything is temporal turn to the eternal concentrate your mind on me fill your heart with my presence love me serve me worship me and you will attain me at last okay
going to continue to chapter 10, Divine Manifestations. The blessed Lord said, listen further, Arjuna, to these words that delight your heart. This is my utmost teaching, which I tell you for your greatest good. Neither the myriad gods nor any of the sages know my origin. I am the source from which gods and sages emerge. Whoever knows me as the unborn, the beginningless, the great lord of all the worlds, he alone sees truly and is freed from all harm. Understanding and wisdom, patience, truth, peace of mind, pleasure and pain, being and non-being, fear and courage, non-violence. It's interesting. So that's a, that right there is said non-violence in this world. Equanimity, control, benevolence, fame, dishonor, all these conditions come forth from me alone. The seven primeval sages, the four progenitors from whom all human beings descend, arose from my own depths, mind born. He who can understand the glory of my manifestations is forever united with me by his unwavering love. I am the source of all things, and all things emerge from me. Knowing this, wise men worship by entering my state of being. Thinking and speaking of me, enlightening one another, their lives surrendered to my care. They are always serene and joyous. To those who are steadfast, who love me with true devotion, I give the yoga of understanding, which will bring them to where I am. Acting with deep compassion from within my own being i dispel all ignorance born darkness with wisdom's resplendent light if you only heard one thing i've said hear this acting with deep compassion this is jerry talking not our krishna although he's reading i'm reading krishna's words <laughs> acting with deep compassion from within my own being i dispel all ignorance born darkness with wisdom's resplendent light acting with deep compassion Arjuna says, yes, or you, Lord, are the supreme freedom, the supreme abode, the eternal person, the primordial God, all-pervading, birthless. This is how the great sages describe you. The divine Narada, Asita, Devala, and Vyasa, now you yourself confirm it. Everything you have told me, Krishna, I believe is true. Neither the gods nor the demons can grasp your infinite forms. You alone know yourself through yourself, Lord of all beings, cause and origin, master of the universe, God of gods. Tell me now in detail the divine self-manifestations by which you pervade these worlds and grace them with so much splendor. How can I know you, Krishna? So, you know, he accepts that this is not an ordinary person. Prior, he just thought he was his charioteer or something like that. But now he's going, okay, I get it. You're not normal. You are the truth. But I still am seeing you in this way. I, I, how, can I how can I come in contact with this? As you're saying, I, I accept it on faith. For, uh, which of your many forms should I visualize, Lord of Yoga, as I focus my thoughts? Give me some further examples of your glorious manifestations, for I never can tire of hearing your life-giving, honey-sweet words. The blessed Lord says, all right, Arjuna. I will tell you a few of my manifestations. The most glorious ones for infinite are the forms in which I appear. 
I am the self, Arjuna, seated in the heart of all beings. I am the beginning and the lifespan of beings and their end as well. Of the sky gods, I am Vishnu, of the heavenly lights, the sun. Marichi, chief of the wind gods, among stars, I am the moon. Of the Vedas, I am the hymns. Indra, among the gods, the mind, among the six senses. The consciousness of all beings. Of the storm gods, I am Shiva. Of the demigods, Kubera. Agni, among the bright gods, and Meru, highest of the mountains. Know, Arjuna, that among priests I am Brihaspati, of generals, the war god Skanda, of waters I am the ocean. Of the great seers I am Bilivu, of words the symbol, syllable Om, of worship I am the mantra, of mountain chains Himalaya. Of trees the sacred fig tree, of divine sages Nalanda, of the highest celestial musicians Chitaratra, of saints, the wise Kapila, of horses, Rucharabas, Indra's favorite, born of the sea foam, of elephants, Indi, Indra's winged, Aravata, of men, I am the king of weapons, Indra's thunderbolt, of cows, Kamaduk, the wish granter, Kandarpa, the god of love, the king of reptiles, Vasuki, of divine snakes, I am Anatta, the cosmic serpent, Varuna, among the gods of the ocean of the blessed forefathers, I am the Aryaman of the controllers, Yama, the god of death, of demons, the devout Prahalada, of things that compel, I am time, the king of animals, the lion, Garuda, among the birds, of purifiers, the wind, of warriors, I am Rama, of sea monsters, Makara, of rivers, the holy Ganges, of creations, the beginning and end, and the middle as well, Arjuna. Of knowledge, knowledge of the self, of orators, I am the speech. Of letters, the first one, A. <laughs> I am imperishable time, the creator whose face is everywhere, death that devours all things. The source of all things to come, of feminine powers, I am fame, wealth, speech, and memory, intelligence, loyalty, forgiveness. Of chance, I am the great Brilat. Of poetic meters, the Gayatri. Of months, Margarishara the first month of seasons flower lush spring of swindles i am the dice game <laughs> the splendor of the high and mighty determination and victory the courage of all brave men of the rishri clan i am krishna of pandavas i am arjuna of the sages i am vyasa of poets the sublime ushanas of punishers i am the scepter the astuteness of the great leaders the silence of the secret things, and I am the wisdom of the wise. I am the divine seed with all beings, Arjuna. Nothing inanimate or animate could exist for a moment without me. These are just a small number of my infinite manifestations were I to tell you more. There would be no end to the telling. <laughs> As I've read this in the past, I tend to always skip through that part because it's not really... In, to, in mentally speaking, very engaging for me personally to read it. But to read it out loud is highly entertaining. <laughs> Just to share that. Whatever in this world is excellent and glows with intelligence or beauty, be sure that it has its source in a fragment of my divine splendor. But what need is there for all these details? Exactly why I choose to skip over it when reading this book. 
Just know that I am, and know that I support the whole universe with a single fragment of myself. Okay, we're going to stop there because I need to attend to the human world. And thank you for listening. We'll continue with the Cosmic Vision, Chapter 11. Thank you for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed it.